Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. My name is Rebecca. And we are two members of the JLU podcast team. The other contributors are Alessandro Maniscalco and Sydney. And we come together to analyze the DC films released by Warner Brothers Studios. You can find us all on Twitter, and you can follow the show at JLU Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing scenes 33 and 34, two short little scenes of Wonder Woman, which is directed by Patty Jenkins. Uh, these are the scenes where Veld is now celebrating after being liberated from the German occupation. And then there is a quick phone call scene uh, with Sir Patrick and Edda talking to Steve and Diana. So we'll go through both of these scenes together. Um, but Rebecca, first, I wanted to just sort of like situate this scene in the movie overall and get kind of an overview of what these short little scenes contribute to the movie or the flow overall. Yeah, this uh, scene that we're going to be talking about is basically a chance for us to kind of slow down and catch our breath because right before this is the big Wonder Woman going through no man's land scene and then she goes into Veld and uh, all kinds of action is happening and uh, she lands up on the top of that church and there's that big kind of explosion when she crashes into it so there's a lot of action and intense uh, sequencing here uh, that's been happening so now we get a chance to kind of just relax and uh, relish in the victory. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a good placement for this scene because it, it comes after all of that action. Yeah, and that action was like really building because you had the emotion of No Man's Land um, and then just the, you know, kick butt kind of action of Veld. So I think it makes a lot of sense to have this, you know, place to just kind of like we can join the people of Veld with kind of like having a sigh of relief and sort of just like reveling like, wow, that just happened. Um, it's almost surreal, but it's so like great to let it soak in. So it's good that we get to join them in this kind of moment. And I think this is part of why like Wonder Woman was such a crowd-pleasing movie, is because they let the audience have the same kind of reactions as the people in the movie. We're like on the same page as the people that were watching. And this one is, even though this is kind of a you know throwaway functional scene, just kind of like getting between two two main sorts of scenes, we can be there with the characters on screen. And feeling that relief and that kind of sense of awe and just like elation over what happened. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because uh, the Vel- the people in Veld, the, the townsfolk, I guess you could say, they are excited about what's just happened because they sense that this is a victory. Something good has happened for them. And we can relish in the fact that Wonder Woman's gone through and she's kicked all these butts and uh, <laughs> she saved the day. And so, yeah, you're right. We're, we're having the same reaction as the, the townspeople. Yeah, and then um, another thing that even though this is a quick little scene, it gives us a chance to check in on our main characters. Um, not Diana as much. You know, we had a big thing with Diana, especially in No Man's Land. But we get to have a little moment towards Charlie, a little moment with Samir, even a little shot of Chief and how he's interacting with people. Uh, and then we get to see with Sir Patrick, like what where he kind of is right now and what he's thinking about. So it's very functional in that sense of just being like, hey, Little character beat, little character beat, little character beat with some of the like secondary characters. And I think that helps because with all of that craziness that happened right before this, I, I would be a little concerned about some of my characters. Like, did everybody make it out okay? Is mm-hmm. everybody safe? Is everybody still alive? So I think that's a good reason to check in on them just to show that everybody's okay and everybody made it out. Yeah, definitely. And then it also serves just a little bit of a purpose of letting the audience know okay, we've made it to this point, we're at the front, we're in, you know, the World War One action. Now this scene, especially the phone call with Sir Patrick, is going to tell the audience, 
all right, here's the next objective. Now it's going to actually be finding Ludendorff and figuring out what's going on with the, you know, the gas poison bomb and stuff. So it's also a little bit of, you know, just direct exposition for the audience to tell them, here's a roadmap of the next few scenes. So that's definitely functional in that sense. But uh, let's go through it a little bit in more detail. So I love the way that this scene begins because it's Diana amongst the people and they're smiling and they're celebrating. But I really like what the filmmakers did because they framed this shot and had the camera moving in a very similar way as what we'll see later when unfortunately the town is gassed. But it's the same thing of like, it's it's kind of tight in on Diana's face. We can see her emotion and the camera's moving around her. It's kind of slow-mo. This one is joyous. And in a few minutes later in the movie, it's going to be the same setup, but it will be very tragic and it'll be a different kind of smoke around it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think uh, in this situation, Diana is... Uh, is happy and relieved that everybody is uh, glad that she could help out and she's glad that she could help out. And I even like that you can see Steve behind her with all those crowds of people. You know, she's shaking hands too. Well, she's shaking hands, but Steve is shaking hands too. So he's he's a little, he gets to have that hero moment with her. Um, Mm -hmm. But when that gas attack happens later, that's when they sort of uh, butt heads a little bit, and they uh, they mm-hmm. come to blows in in terms of their ideologies. So they're they're separated uh, later on in the film, but here they they get to be heroes together. Yeah, that's kind of nice. But yeah, it's it visually they did kind of an echo. But you're right, the emotion is very different. Not just the tragedy of the town, but also Diane and Steve's dynamics for sure. Like this one is Diane and Steve together. And it's it's building up the last little ramp here towards their night together. But when the gas attack happens, they're kind of on the on the offs, you know, like they're having a little bit of a conflict between each other. So definitely a contrast there. Um, the next spot it goes right to is something BVS fans like ourselves, huge BVS fans, we will recognize the next part of the scene. <laughs> yes, this uh, is the taking of the famous photograph that Bruce Wayne encounters in Lex Luthor's files that uh, alert him to the fact that Diana Prince is immortal and has been around for quite some time. So mm-hmm. it's actually, for me, as a BBS fan, it's really cool to actually get to see this uh, picture being taken because it, it played, it played a, a role in terms of character dynamics in BBS. And so getting to actually see what the origination of that, I thought was really cool. Yeah, definitely. And even back with BVS, I thought the photo was great because of the characters. Like, even just seeing a static image of these five people, we know Diane in the middle, but seeing Samir and Chief and Charlie and stuff, even from BVS, I was very intrigued by these unique, diverse-looking people. And I wondered what they were doing, how they got together. And so now to see the photo and be like, all right, wow, I actually know what they were doing i know what this photo is commemorating i know a little bit about these characters so far so for me it was just really cool to fill in that backstory that i was very curious about and bvs i think did a great job at least for me of like piquing my interest yeah and i think for me it's the picture almost serves as a tie into justice league as well because i sort of see uh the odd fellows as sort of her proto justice league 
this is her team. This is who she's been fighting with and fighting oh, yeah. alongside. Right. And so when she gets to Justice League, she has that same kind of crew again. Mm-hmm. After she's, mm-hmm. you know, abandoned humanity for 100 years, she comes back and she does have a crew that she is proud to fight alongside. So I, I think that even ties into Justice League. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, we saw the Wonder Woman film and the Justice League film just a few months apart from each other, and it's Diana being kind of a leader amongst the team. But for the character, that was there was a lot that went on between those two teams. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, I was just thinking when I was re-watching this scene, uh, I'm, I am I guess this is uh, Diana's first picture that she's ever ever yeah. taken. I don't, I don't think they would have had anything like this on the mascara. Yeah, I don't think so. Like an actual photograph. You know, they, I mean, we didn't even see many paintings. Well, I guess there was some like wall art and stuff like that. Um, so they have likenesses of things probably. But yeah, photograph. This is a new experience for her. For she, uh, she might not even know what's really going on. <laughs> Somebody like they were lining up, and one of the odd fellows probably told her like, "Yeah, no, just stand here. It's gonna, <laughs> they're gonna capture our image somehow or whatever." Yeah. But she seems to be a good sport with it. She's got the robe on, which is kind of cool too. Yeah. And the the photographer has a couple lines here. He says, you know, asks him to stand still. And then he says, at the afterward, he says, it's an honor for me of uh, taking your photograph. So I think it's because he's acknowledging like they are really the heroes of this moment. And I, I think it's I think it's that. I think he's appreciative of what they did for the town. But I think in the broader scope of things, I think this is Wonder Woman. You know, it's an honor to take Wonder Woman's picture. He doesn't know that yet. He doesn't yeah. really know who she is. But mm-hmm. in terms of a, a broader world building kind of thing, I think it's a neat thing that this guy in this small little town is taking her first photograph. And, and especially the fact that it, it plays such a big role in the in the DCEU as a whole I think that's a really cool, you know, it's a it's a neat uh, legacy for this photographer. We don't know his name. We don't know where he comes from. But this guy took that picture and that's he's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of like uh, comic book artists when they will talk about just how much of an honor it is to be able to draw a character. Yeah. You know, and they'll say like, oh, yeah, this is such an important character with such a history. And I've admired this character. And then they'll say, oh, it's so great that I get a chance to draw some issues of this character. For example, Wonder Woman. That reminds me of how you're talking about like, oh, the photo- photographer might not be aware of, of how important it is, but it's, it is kind of an honor to be able to capture her very rare instance. And is she's going to be out of the public eye for a long time after this. So, And she's going to be hunting down this picture for a long time. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we can talk when the gassing happens about what the fate of that photographer might have been and stuff like that. But for now, he just takes the picture and we know that it eventually ends up you know, with uh, Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne, and eventually Diana gets it back. Um, so it's a nice, you know, tag, obviously. It's connection not just to BVS uh, and Justice League and stuff, but it's also connected to the very final scene of this movie. Mm. So after the photographer leaves, we kind of go in, we have Diana and Samir, but they are, Diana's kind of, you know, taking stock of everything and looking around, checking in with people. And she uh, looks over at Charlie and, you know, says he has all this talk of shooting, but he cannot shoot because... Um, Charlie did not really rise to the moment with the sniper and stuff. So she's kind of, you know, thinking about it. And to me, it's also showing her personality trait of being very aware of other people. And she's very thoughtful of others and keen on like how people are feeling and stuff. And so she's not saying it like in a mean way, like, oh, Charlie let us down. She's more like compassionate and like, oh, like what's kind of going on with Charlie? You know, he talks a big game, but he didn't really do it. 
she doesn't say it in a mean, mal- malicious kind of way. Yeah, and this is coming off the heels of uh, the scene w- uh, at the fire mm-hmm. where Charlie has that, I guess, PTSD dream uh, or nightmare yeah. that he has. And and Diana sees him experience that. And so she might be putting two and two together uh, with his failure to be able to get the shot. So, I, yeah, I don't think it's uh, saying it out of, you know, rubbing it in like, oh, he talked up this big game and he failed to do his job. I think it's more of a she's trying to figure out what's going on with him. Mm-hmm. And it's really to Samir's credit, too, because Samir is not upset with Charlie or anything like that at all, either. He's kind of like, oh, you know, yeah, Charlie's like dealing with stuff, you know, to me, it's a credit to their camaraderie and stuff as a team that they have this friendship, but they understand each other and they're not hard on each other like that. And Samir's kind of like, yeah, I, I kind of I know a lot about Charlie. I know what he's been through and. And then Samir also empathizes with Charlie by connecting it to himself because he says, not everyone gets to be what they want to be all the time. Like, Charlie was not as effective as a sharpshooter as he would have wanted to be. And then Samir connects it to himself, too, and says that he doesn't really get to be who he wants to be all the time either. Yeah, and I think that uh, plays into the fact that maybe maybe Charlie doesn't really want to be somebody who shoots guns. Mm-hmm. You know, he ha- his talent is more, it seems like, <laughs> in the film, his talent seems to be more entertaining people with music and song. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's playing into the fact that maybe he's that's not what he's meant to be. That's mm-hmm. not what he wants to be. Maybe he really does want to be a musician who entertains people. Yeah. And I really like the, Samir in this scene and, and what he talks about, you know, wanting to be an actor and he can't do it for, uh, you know, I guess, racial prejudice at the time. Mm-hmm. I like that because it not it, it gives him depth to his character. It uh, brings our attention to what's happening in the bro- the broader scope of the world, and it also foreshadows what what we're going to see uh, later on down in the film when he and Steve go into the gala. So I really like just in this this one line, uh, it does so much with just a, a simple uh, set of set of words. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, a lot of meaning can kind of be taken in connections to other places out of just this short little thing here. And I I marked this spot, too, as a place where a theme is actually stated. Uh, It's called theme stated in kind of the, you know, the book of uh, screenwriting and stuff. But Samir says everyone is fighting their own battles. And we marked that early on as like one of the overarching themes of the movie is you can find that mankind is kind of grappling with things as a society but inside of that it's always actually individuals that are dealing with their own issues and going through their own things whenever you come across a person whenever you interact with somebody whenever you just see somebody across the street that person is dealing with things they have stresses they have you know pains that they're carrying with them Um, those pains don't have to define them they can have lots of joys and other things as well but everybody is carrying something with them Um, And so to recognize that complexity is, you know, an important part of understanding humanity. And with Diana, this is her learning about man's world. And so for her, this is kind of continuing her lesson of like, wow, the people here, you know, have been through a lot. They're complicated. They have their own battles. Um, And so it's really good learning experience. And like uh, Patty Jenkins said, as we see these things, we always can see them through Diana's perspective. And I think they do that here, too, because we follow Diana's gaze to see Charlie. And then we Mm -hmm. are with Diana as she's talking to Samir. And then we will be with Diana, like, looking over at Chief. 
And so I think the filmmakers had a really, really strong point of view that as we go through all these complicated ideas and this nuance and get to know these people and situations, we can do it from the standpoint of Diana. So we always know where we are rooted. It's We're rooted with Diana. Yeah, and I really like the idea of that because I, I don't know how it would have been on Themyscira if they had... Uh, a bunch of wars like that. I don't know if they would have had just, you know, one big war that everybody was fighting, but then did they have other things that she was paying attention to with personal trials that people were going through? I don't know what it would have been comparative, comparing um, this situation to Themyscira, but uh, I, I think you're right. I think Diana is learning about not only the war on man's world, but the personal struggles that each individual person is having to go through. So there's the broader war of World War One, and then there are the personal uh, battles that each person is going through. Mm-hmm. Now, one quick thing, just in terms of like uh, the expectations of movie watching and stuff like that. So myself and I talked to my wife about this, and she said the same thing. We thought these things with Charlie we're all a setup for like a big payoff at the end. So like when he said he's a sharpshooter and he, you know, shoots people from far away and then he talks a big game, but he doesn't, you know, doesn't carry it through here in Veld. Just from like typical tropes of movie making, if you say about a character, he's a great sharpshooter, but he didn't come through this time and he didn't come through that time. Usually in a movie, that means in act three, there's going to be a big moment where the sharpshooter like comes through and is able to use his sharpshooting skills to like save the day. So my wife and I were both surprised that by the end of the movie, there was never like a moment where Charlie had to like snipe something really important to like save the day. But in reflecting on it, I was actually happy about that because to me, it would have been easier, but less meaningful, I guess, to just have Charlie like eventually get his nerve back and and pull the trigger i thought it was actually kind of a more courageous choice for the filmmakers and to me more meaningful to say like you know what maybe charlie is never really going to be a sniper again or a sharpshooter again but maybe he can find other ways to contribute and maybe his friends will still respect him and welcome them welcome him in even if he's not like at the quote-unquote top of his game yeah, I think there is an expectation that he would have come back and, and made a shot at the end of the film. I, I, I would agree with that. But I, I do also agree that it's nice to play against that expectation and to show a different way that he would be able to be involved with the team and, and show some uh, strengths and traits of his own that would be more positive because I think the war and all of the stuff that he was going through because of that really negatively affected him. But uh, you see when he's singing or you hear him singing, we, we hear him singing a lot in the movie and he sounds happier. So I think emotionally it is a much, uh, it's a much better choice. Mm-hmm. The last little thing here is um, chief. Like they don't explicitly talk about chief, but they've just said, you know, everybody's fighting their own battles and Diana looks over at Chief. And so we're kind of like, oh, you know, what's kind of what's Chief going on with? Now, we know that Chief is looking for freedom and he is, has been kind of marginalized and had his land taken away from his people back in the States. Um, so we know that he's dealing with that. And then w- the little glimpse we see of him, what I took from this was just that Chief is not a war profiteer. He is not there to try to like you know, get rich or find the schemes for trading or whatever amongst wartime. He seems like he's there to just help and be free. And he likes, you know, he likes to be himself. 
Um, and he, but he's there for more noble reasons. He's not there like for profiteering. Um, and I, I took that just because it's, it seems like people are trying to offer him like thanks or gifts or something for saving the town. And he's just saying like, no, 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 you know, like that's what I took from it. Um, even though there's not, not really dialogue here. Yeah, and I think that's a really cool uh, way to show his character in in this scene, particularly because for me, when I think about his earlier appearance, when he has all those goods in in his tent, and he seems to be wanting to trade them or sell them, it seems like he would be wanting to make money. But here, you get to see his the more noble side of his character that he just wants to help, uh, you know, free this city, and he doesn't want anything in return. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Steve is the other member of the Odd Fellows, and uh, he doesn't get talked about either in that quick little scene thirty-three. But um, we know some things about Steve's personal battles a little bit. We know that he's been through a lot. We know that he's very invested in trying to stop the war and save lives and stuff. But we don't yet know Steve's like really innermost sorrows and pains and stuff because he kind of puts up a. He puts up a little bit of a uh, sarcastic, confident, kind of cocky exterior, but he's protecting something underneath that. And so scene 33 leads us to ask, what's Steve's personal battle if everybody is fighting their own personal battles? And I think we're going to get the best answer to that in just a couple scenes from now when uh, we have the magical night um, in scene 35. So it's kind of like, you know, we see some of the personal battles of the secondary odd fellows and wait just a few minutes and we'll find out more about Steve's personal battles with loneliness and that kind of thing. All right. And speaking of Steve, we actually do see Steve right away next in uh, scene 34 here. So he's on the phone. So do you want to take us into this next scene here? Yeah. So this is uh, Diana and Steve and they are on the phone with Etta trying to find out Ludendorff's location. And she is going to tell them that he is uh, planning a gala and uh, Sir Patrick overhears Etta's conversation and is like, no, uh, I don't think they should go. And Steve basically says, no, we're going anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even a little moment where uh, Diana starts to put some pieces together, or so she thinks, about uh, who Aries might be. Yeah, so good to check in with Sir Patrick and Etta. Um, and then this is the one I was mentioning, kind of just lets us know what the next little objective of the plot is going to be. Um, now... If people are from Belgium, I bet you it was fun to watch this scene because you get a nice close-up of a map of the era. And for, you know, people that are local to this area, it might be cool to actually, you can make out a lot of the town names and stuff. Um, So it might be fun for them to actually see it. I'm not familiar with this region of Europe very well. So for me, it it was not super meaningful, but I could see Edda pointing right at Veld. So I knew Veld was in there. Yeah, I don't know a lot of these locations either, but I got really curious because... Uh, on the map, the, it's very it's it's much bigger than the other little town names. There's a little uh, like a little card or a note on the map that says German High Command, which mm-hmm. is what Ed is talking about. And then uh, beneath it are the words Chateau, and it looks like Veronique, uh, mm-hmm. I think, uh, like French for Veronica, probably. Uh, I'm guessing at that. I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. But I was curious if that was a real place. And so the only thing I could find on the interwebs <laughs> was that uh, Chateau Veronique was, uh, looks like a French winery hmm. of of sorts. So I, I thought that that was cool that it possibly is a real place. Mm-hmm. Very cool. But I think Chateau Veronique is where... 
the gala takes place. Oh. So okay. so maybe it, it it probably isn't associated with this winery. So don't uh, associate bad things with these people <laughs> in their wine. Um, but I, I think that's sort of maybe what that's supposed to be if it's associated with German High Command. I don't know. I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they located German High Command and then they said, oh, they're having this gala. So they had a little, you know, it would say, okay, this is where the gala is going to be. That makes sense. I had never actually connected those dots. I think that's probably right. So the two big things here that are probably worth talking about a little bit is Sir Patrick. So Sir Patrick has been helping them out. Like he gave them money and like sent them on their way on this mission. But now he's like, no, no, no. Like don't go the next step. Don't go to the actual gala. So, you know, you could have some different interpretations and we've had different interpretations amongst our podcast analysis team about like what Sir Patrick is thinking there. My take on it is I think Sir Patrick helps them start out on their way because he wants Diana to go see the front and see the carnage and see the wounded and the dead and the innocents, you know, in pain and stuff. And so I think he wanted to kick them on their way so that Diana would kind of get turned off and just abhorred by all the violence and stuff in man's world. But he was thinking that they wouldn't be so successful. And now they've been successful thus far, and they're going on to the next point. So I think Sir Patrick's like, oh, I don't want you to actually succeed all the way. I just wanted you to go to the front and see some of the ugliness of it. So that's kind of how I like squared it in my own personal interpretation of it. Yeah, that's it's something that I have to wrap my brain around it, too, because I understand that Sir Patrick slash Ares wants he wants the armistice to happen, right? So uh, if they go and they stop the gala and they stop uh, what's going to happen there, I don't know how that affects the armistice, if that would make it fail. Uh, So, yeah, he does seem to uh, not expect uh, them wanting to go. I think probably he, I mean, this is just my speculation, but he could probably live either way. Like if Ludendorff succeeds with the bomb and stuff, uh, the getting the new poison and everything, then that's going to just launch World War One into years more of, of pain and strife and everything. But if they, if they sign the armistice, he also knows that that's just going to be temporary. He's like, that's just going to allow time for anger and resentment to build up, and then it will ignite into war again in the future. So I think Ares is, or, you know, Sir Patrick is just feeling like, either way, there's going to be more war, <laughs> either immediately or down the road. <laughs> That's true. So I feel like he's probably just fine either way. And that would also square with the fact that he helped Ludendorff and Maru with a little nudge to uh, make their new poison. But he also seems to be kind of pushing for the armistice. So f- for me, I think he's kind of just like, yeah, either way, either way, I think mankind will live down to their, you know, worst violent urges. Um, but, uh, Alessandro has a different take on Ares. Uh, we've talked about that elsewhere. We will talk about it again. But the other part here of this scene that we should touch on is Diana putting the pieces together. So what did, what did you make of that where Diana kind of figures out or thinks that she figures out what's going on? Well, I think is with all the information that she has at this point, it makes a lot of sense that she would jump to the conclusion that Ludendorff is Ares. I think it makes sense at this point in the film when I first saw it, that's where I was going to. So I think, and you, you were talking about the uh, being able to kind of be there with the characters when they're doing the things that they are doing. And I think that's another example of that is that I was there with the character while she was coming to this conclusion. I was making that same conclusion. So mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, you know, 
we don't have more information to say that it's not at this point, that he's mm-hmm. not Aries. So mm-hmm. I think she's actually pretty smart that she's uh, putting uh, putting all the pieces together in her head. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely not a crazy conclusion for her to draw. It turns out to be wrong, but it, it's reasonable at the time. Um, it's kind of like the best information or insight that she has at this time. Right. Um, so she probably shouldn't be like totally certain about it. She's kind of over certain. But it is a reasonable conjecture to make at this point that it could be Ludendorff himself. And I thought it was pretty nice that they, the filmmakers, allowed their main character, their star, to be wrong about something. Like, they don't try to make her a perfect character. It's it's a reasonable thing to do, but it's not perfect, you know? Yeah, and she's really wrong. Like, big time (laughs) wrong. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think it is, uh, it's good because we get tricked and the the hero gets tricked and so uh, i think the twist at the end is a better payoff because everyone was duped mm-hmm. now that being said there is also some humor that they fit into this scene and i think that's nice again it's part of the coming down from all the intense action that we saw um, another way to kind of have that release of emotion is to have some humor in there so Etta gives us a little humor. Um, even Steve uh, has a little bit of humor. And I think that was a nice touch on the scene. I don't know if you wanted to comment on those little bit of a uh, little bit of comical beats in here. Yeah, I, I think it, to me it's funny that Steve uses that. You're breaking up. You're breaking up. <laughs> like it's he, been around he, for a long time, apparently. Yeah, yeah, that's been around for a really long time. People have been using that as an excuse to get off the phone with you for a long time. Uh, so I, I really liked that because. He uh, Steve realizes that Sir Patrick is not going to, you know, if he's going to follow Sir Patrick's orders, he's not going to be able to go to this gala. So he's got to figure out a way to get out of this conversation and disobey the guy who gave them money <laughs> to go on this journey. So uh, I, I think it was really funny that he did that. And uh, I, I really especially like uh, Etta at the very end of this scene, Sir Patrick says something to the effect of how likely is it that, he, that he's going to... Uh, follow my wishes and she says not very likely i'll be honest uh so i <laughs> think there was a good little bit of uh comedy there uh, from lucy davis and uh she she just uh delivers that so well because it's uh it's she's saying it straight she's saying it uh, honestly uh but it has a little twinge of humor there and mm-hmm. it says a lot about her character so i do like that they added some of those uh humorous bits right before things get really serious yeah uh, i agree and uh, things are laid out pretty clearly. So, you know, they say tomorrow night there's the gala. The Kaiser's going to be there. Ludendorff's going to be there. Maru's going to be there. It's it's crunch time now for the armistice or the poison gas, you know, like. So they, they really lay out, okay, this is what the stakes are. This is what the situation's going to be. Um, but it's tomorrow night, so we still have tonight. And uh, that's where we will go after this. That is our analysis of scenes 33 and 34 of Wonder Woman. Next up, we have that magical night that we were alluding to is coming up soon, so that's where we'll go next. And if you need some more DCEU content in the meantime, there's the Suicide Squad cast for news, and there's always Man of Steel answers with a back catalog of uh, in-depth analysis on Man Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and some other topics. But anyway, right here on the JLU podcast, we thank all of you so much for listening. And if you want to support the show, you can actually do so now on Patreon. We have a Patreon page. We have some different reward levels that we're very excited about, so we'll hope that you take time to check those out.